Freelancing for Journalists is sponsored by The Tax Farm, the accountancy service dedicated to freelancers, the self-employed and small business owners. Imagine no more end-of-year panic or nasty tax surprises. The Tax Farm can't promise that they'll make you less busy, but they can promise to take away the grind of bookkeeping, freeing you up to do what you do best. With a simple fixed fee, they make hiring an accountant easy. They're also offering our listeners an exclusive 15% discount with the code FFJ15. You want to find out more? Then head to thetaxfarm.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about working for yourself. I'm Emma Wilkinson, a freelance journalist specialising in health and medicine. And I'm Lily Cantor, a freelance money, health and lifestyle journalist. How are you doing this week, Lily? Less busy than we have been? We're in second lockdown, so does that mean a calmer life for you or not? Uh, Well, I think the thing is, I made a decision last week it kind of a rash decision decision but I did think it through and I got some advice um but I gave up some regular shift work that I've been doing and it's just been such a relief to not be doing it I think I just put myself under too much pressure um so I've actually feel like I've got a bit more breathing space now um and I can kind of focus on all the other things that I've got going on so Yes, I'm feeling a little bit calmer now. What about you? Good. Well, it sounds like that was the right decision. Uh, yeah, I've had a much calmer week, kind of not working evenings, not like I've had room to breathe. Although I have had a few reminders that last week I don't think I was functioning that well because on Sunday I had to ask Lily why I'd written in my diary 12pm and then nothing next to it. <laughs> Are we supposed to be doing something? And then today I actually forgot that I was supposed to be interviewing someone. And just forgot because I'd written it in a different place in my diary to where it was supposed to be. So I don't think last week I was firing on all cylinders, but yeah, <laughs> it's it's been uh, it's been a good week. So uh, let's move on to our topic this week, which is um, diversity in race and religion within journalism. Yeah, so we know there's a lack of diversity within the British media. Um, this is definitely not a new concern. Uh, it's really been flagged repeatedly as a real problem. In fact, an NCTJ report in 2017 highlighted that journalists are less ethnically diverse than the UK workforce as a whole, with around 94% of journalists being white. So this means that the media as a whole is not as diverse as the population it serves. Yeah, so this topic kind of was raised again um sort of when we were seeing the Black Lives Matters protests earlier this year. And that prompted us to add that to the list of the topics that we wanted to talk about. And there are kind of lots of strands to unpick here, which we will try to do over this episode. Um, But essentially, if minority groups are underserved by the media because of the lack of diversity, that is likely to have a knock-on effect on trust in the media and willingness to speak to the press and kind of not having a wide range of backgrounds represented in the media 
journalists are going to miss out on those stories and not tell the right stories or tell stories in the right way. Yeah, so we've decided this week, instead of our top tips, um, we want to talk about something we've both become more, more aware of and started doing. And that's ensuring there is diversity in those that we interview for stories or in the case studies that we use. Yeah, so a few years ago, I did make a concerted effort to do this for gender. And um, because I do a lot of reporting in medicine and science, and you can end up just kind of speaking to men and male scientists all the time if you're not careful and so I kind of made a real concerted effort to address that and I think um you know once you kind of start to notice something it does make a difference um but I still sometimes have to stop and kind of reflect on the contacts I'm using because it's just so easy sometimes to go straight to those usual suspects who you know will give you a good quote and that you've always kind of gone to um but yeah, more recently, I've been trying to do the same thing, but looking at ethnic di diversity of those that I'm interviewing, uh, case studies that I'm using, for example. Um, and I've kind of made a concerted effort to try and widen my contacts. And actually, quite a few of the magazines that I write for have also flagged this to me as something that's important to them. So I've kind of had briefs explicitly stating, you know, we do not want a feature full of white men. Like we want to hear from more voices and we want you to do that. Um, I think you'd had an experience that made you think about this recently, Lily. Yeah, and this sort of came about almost kind of by accident, but then I made a conscious decision um, to be very sort of careful in who I selected. So it was a story I did for a national newspaper. I was looking for a couple of case studies, which is quite usual. I tend to go to sort of similar places to ask for case studies. And on the whole, it tends to be um, white women that come forward. Um, and I, like you, I've over the years sort of tried to get more men in case studies. Um, but this particular time I, I was sent, um, a load of people got in contact with me sending their details um, and I had a choice and there were two people that were actually very similar, um, but one was a black woman and one wasn't. And I actually made a conscious decision um, to select the woman that was black because I just thought, hang on, I hardly ever, you know, use diverse case studies. Um, and then it just so happened that my second case study, who someone else had, had found for me, um, was also a black woman. and. I've suddenly realized that was the first time I'd had two case studies that were both non-white and that was quite a shock but also I was kind of pleased that I was able to do that and I think that's definitely made me think more carefully about um, that kind of selection process that you go through but also um, where you turn to to look for case studies not going to the usual places like you say um, and trying to to reach out into different networks um, and yeah just kind of just being much more conscious of it really. Okay we this is something that I really want to talk about with our guests in terms of what kind of we should shouldn't be doing what we get right what we get wrong all those kind of things so let's bring in our guest first we have Simon Mia who is a freelance journalist and writer she has written for The Guardian, The Times, Independent, Daily Telegraph, and worked for the BBC. 
Um, her work has appeared in a couple of anthologies as well. It's not about the Burka, which was published in 2019, and the best most awful job in 2020. And very excitingly, she seemed to be a published novelist as well, which I can't wait. Her first book looks amazing. It's called The Khan, and it's out next year. It's a crime thriller. I'm so excited to read it. Um, I first met Simon on a weird BBC induction day we had to do, and we bonded because we were the only journalists there and both from Bradford. Um, so, yeah, it was a really strange day. Uh, and I seem to remember we created some kind of skit, but Simon doesn't remember this at all. So I may be remembering that completely wrong. So hi, Simon, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me on. And we've also got with us Travis Levius, who's a freelance writer and editor, a content creator and a hospitality consultant based in London. After quitting his teaching job in Atlanta, he pursued the unknown across the pond and somehow stumbled upon a career that's brought him onto Indonesian yachts, face to face with East Island's mysterious Maori. I should have asked you how to pronounce that. Why? <laughs> right, my <laughs> East Island's mysterious Maori. And in Prince William and Princess Kate's honeymooned here villa in the Seychelles. His writing has appeared in The Telegraph, Vogue, CNN Travel, Forbes Travel Guide, Lonely Planet, Travel Plus Leisure, Southeast Asia, National Geographic Traveller and others. In fact, he's right in the middle of a press trip now. Um, he's joining us from Atlanta. We've got a bit of a five um, hour time gap, but he's managed to join us. So hi, Travis, thanks very much for coming. Hello, thank you. And thank you for the, the late evening <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, so Simon, we always kind of start by asking our guests their top tip. So I want to ask you, what's that kind of one thing you'd wish you'd known before you started as a journalist? What one bit of advice would you give to you that many years ago? Um, one bit of advice would probably be uh, to have faith in myself. Have faith in yourself when you go in there and appear confident. And if you appear confident, um, that's half the job done. That's probably... yeah that's yeah 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 definitely fake it till you make it we, we say that pretty much every I mean I, I feel like that's still my approach <laughs> I, I feel like that's that's always been my approach it's sort of but it's that thing about if you believe in yourself then eventually everything else falls into place and I think someone someone once gave me this great analogy if you're getting on a bus and the bus driver looked really nervous you would not feel safe but if you know, when you're driving that bus as a journalist and you're getting those stories, if you look confident, then everything else sort of falls into place. So, yeah, be confident. Yeah. And what about you, Travis? If you kind of could go back in time, what key bit of advice would you give yourself about breaking into journalism? I think the biggest piece of advice for me kind of goes hand in hand with the confidence, but um, really about knowing your worth knowing that you know, your words is going usually towards a, a business and you need to be paid accordingly and you know, kind of not selling for less than what you are um, you know, giving to said business or organization or, or media outlet. And um, yeah, that's been quite a journey of kind of being able to say, no, this is my fee. If you can't go high, if you can't meet that, then sorry, you know, I'll go somewhere else. Just having that, that real sense of, I guess, confidence to know that you know you're bringing value you need to make sure you're paid accordingly especially as a freelance journalist 
That's really, really good advice. I think I still, um, I'm getting much better at this, but I, yeah, I really kind of, I'm nodding away as you're saying that because I feel I have to give myself a talking to sometimes about oh, kind yeah. of, you know, what expertise you're bringing to this situation. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's all a, a big mind game, isn't it? Like um, when you, when you have to sell yourself, <laughs> it's about like really just, yeah, kind of really, um, cheering yourself on to know that you're, you're capable and so it's yeah it's, it's a uphill thing but it's, it's worth it and um, so Simon tell us a little bit about how you got um into journalism and your kind of journey there so um I I didn't know anyone who was a journalist it was something that I really wanted to do my grandfather had been a journalist in Iran he died when he was in his 40s so that was really young so it was this really romantic profession but when my parents uh, moved to England, they didn't have a network. So we didn't, I didn't know how it worked. I'd been to university, I had a degree in science, and I'd kind of fallen into this master's in engineering, but I didn't really know how newspapers operated. Um, but I used to read the local paper. Um, it was a Telegraph and Argus in Bradford. And what I did was they did a, they had a column called the Voice of Youth and they wanted people to write for it. And it was for anyone who was under 25. So I emailed them. I was quite, by that time I was, uh, I was quite gobby and I was quite bolshy and I thought, I really want this. So I'm just going to email them and tell them um, I'd like to come and come and see. So I called the features editor, who was a guy called Dave Barnett and he was, he was absolutely wonderful. Um, I pestered him, I went to see him and, and I sort of said, look, I really want to do this. How do I do it? And I wrote a few columns for them. And then they, um, there was a job came up. So Bradford is a really diverse city, as you know, Emma, because I know you grew up there. But the newsroom was white. There wasn't anyone of colour there at all. And I think they were looking for somebody. Uh, I, I'd never stepped in a newsroom before. Um, I, I'd sort of never, I didn't have my NCTJ or my NCE, any of those qualifications, but they interviewed me and they liked me. And what they did was they asked me to spend a couple of days at the paper. And as soon as I walked into that newsroom and picked up the phone, I felt like I'd come home. I knew that was my place where I belonged. So uh, luckily I landed that job and it was the days where you could get a bursary. So you'd get your uh, job, they would pay for your NCTJ um, and they pay you, they pay your salary. So that was it really, that's how I ended up at the Telegraph and Argus, so I did and did you that kind of experience where that you had when you started there that there wasn't kind of anybody who looked like you in that newsroom have you kind of had that in other newsrooms that you've gone to is that kind of something that's repeated itself or that's always been my experience so after that I went to BBC Look North so it's uh, regional television and again there wasn't anyone who was of my background there and it's really interesting because it was just after the London tube bombings had happened and those bombers were from West Yorkshire. Uh, but there was, no, there was no journalist there of that background to tap into those news stories. To, there wasn't a Muslim journalist, uh, there wasn't anyone brown or black. So that's been my experience of journalism from day dot. And kind of what did that mean for you in terms of telling those stories? I mean, did they um was that helpful to you in you know in order to be able to tap into those communities and kind of do something different to what everybody else was doing in that newsroom 
So it was true, yeah. So it was it was sort of two pronged really. It was brilliant for me in that I spoke the languages. So I speak Urdu, I speak Hindi, I speak Punjabi. So when I was at the Telegraph in Argus, I could tap into that those communities. And when I went in to interview them, um, they they knew they know my byline because if you're the only kind of non very English sounding byline in a paper, you're very noticeable. So they knew that. So it was almost a bit like I became this very small time local celebrity by being at that paper. And they trusted me. They trusted me more than they trusted somebody who was white um, or not Muslim. Partly, I think, because I knew how to speak to them. You know, these, this was the place where I grew up. This was my community. I'd grown up in mosques. I'd been to all those places. So I knew what the nuances were. And I knew how to talk to people. Um, I knew where the line was. So if I ever did a death knock for a young Muslim person, I knew all the kind of rules and traditions around that. So it sort of gave me, the foundation was there for me. So that was brilliant. But I have to say it was really isolating being the only journalist who wasn't uh, white. You know, the only, the only non-white journalist there. It was really, it could be really lonely. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my other, my next kind of question. I wasn't kind of quite sure how to phrase it, but just in terms of how you were welcomed into those newsrooms or kind of how so, that collaboration. So the local paper was amazing. It was, it, they, they knew, they valued what, what I brought. That's what I felt. I felt like they hadn't had access to these cultures and these communities and I, they knew I could open those doors. And I, and I think also part of that was because I was a trainee, they kind of gave me the support that I needed to get, um, to, get to where I wanted to get to in terms of my qualifications, but they knew in exchange they were getting contacts and um, access to these places. So that was brilliant. When my second experience wasn't so great and I did get to hear things like you've spoken, you've taken someone else's job and um, you're only here because of X, Y, Z. So that I actually heard those really stereotypical, horrible comments. Um, and, and also it was sort of the unconscious bias of people, the assumption that everyone who's Asian or everyone who's black is poor and working class. I did come across that quite a bit, which was really difficult. And I think the only way to solve that is to have more people of colour in newsrooms, really. Yeah, and Travis, can we kind of bring you in here? Because you've had more of an unusual route, I think, into writing. And I just wondered if you could explain a bit more about, about that, how you, how you got to where you are now and, and some of the experiences you've had along the way. Sure. Um, <clears throat> there was a bit of a disconnect for a few years. So I dabbled in college journalism my last semester of my senior year when I realized, oh, um, even though I have a really tough year trying to graduate, I'm like, I think I really love writing. So when I start getting into that and, and really found passion, it was actually with music and, and um, a little, yeah, actually just music for a magazine and the student newspaper. And then fast forward many years later, I'm just doing a blog, not really doing much journalism at all, just to stop with college. And um, honestly, I just kind of followed my gut with um, wanting to move to my dream city, which is London, and just trying to figure out how I could live there. <laughs> so at the time I was an assistant teacher and I had a great time, like, you know, um, helping kids, you know, 
kind of follow their dreams or listen to their dreams. But I knew what I wanted to do in the end was to live in London, travel the world. So I got to London with $300 to my name, <clears throat> which is crazy. And the same gut feeling that I had about moving to London, the same gut feeling said to start writing and start writing beyond my own blog. Um, so I got my first freelance gig, uh, thanks to a friend of a friend, worked for a photography company needing content. And um, it was nice to be paid, you know, a couple of hundred quid for an article. Okay, I'm getting out of poverty now. And um, that same gut feeling was like to start working more on my blog, like talking about the city of London and you know all the great things about it. And so me doing that allowed me to get a um, position. It was an unpaid position as a London city editor uh, for a food and drink website based in, in the United States. And that was really the platform that gave me a portfolio like, of a major media outlet. And um, then just months later, I realized like, wait, I'm writing about London this whole time. Like, why don't I start writing about travel? And that's how my career kind of took off where I had to, beyond that website being an editor i had to learn pitching and but thankfully i already had a portfolio to show uh you know freelance the you know freelance clients you know what i can do and so from there it just kind of exploded and that just brought me to where i what where i am now and have you found that there's been any barriers that you've noticed along the way i mean in regards to race or do, or is that just not been an issue barriers no uh, i do i do think the the travel journalism industry is quite um open-minded however um it is a struggle because it's it's exceedingly rare to find other black journals so as an american i actually write for uk and us titles and because i spend most of my time in london i'm really more so in the uk um you know circle industry circle and I can't count how many times that I will go to an event even if it's a, a large event of like 100 people I might be the only black person there um, I, I think there might be five black journalists that I know an entire in an entire UK which is crazy so I wouldn't say there's a barrier I think you want to get into like mental barriers sometimes it, I do feel like maybe I walk into a room and I think well do people think I'm good enough because I don't look like them you know because they're not used to seeing a black journalist like do they think that I you know can can bring the quality the same quality that they can of these print publications or whatnot so I think a lot of that barrier is mental but uh, I think the, the bigger question is how can we um, encourage or or how can the industry encourage more um, diverse voices to, to break in because I think the the problem is is exposure really not necessarily barriers yeah yeah I mean well, that's it, a re sorry I was just gonna say that's a re really really good point and um, I'd be interested on in hearing kind of both your views I mean Simon how do you think we can what can we do what can journalism do the media do to address this lack of diversity in the media? I think um, it's a question of more opportunities really. One of the things with freelance is freelancing seems to be that you get commissions picked up by people who get to know you and a lot of commissioners move around from different magazines um, and they usually take their um, trusted journalists with them, so the freelancing journalists. So it's a question of um, giving people more opportunities. 
I don't think it's about mentoring. People always set up these mentoring things or they set up, you know, more training. I think we have some brilliant journalists of colour who write some amazing content. I think it's about, firstly, not expecting them to write about their faith or about experiences of colour, but actually asking them to write about just normal things like, you know, food, or drink or travel or writing or motherhood or any of those things. But secondly, also giving them a chance to do it. So maybe having... Um, deciding, okay, I, I really want to find somebody who, or a few people on my roster of journal, freelance journalists who are of colour, and I'm going to help them along the way and give them a bit more time to help develop them and bring them up to that level. Does, does that make sense, sort of? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, when, so one thing that kind of struck me around the kind of Black Lives Matters stuff that there seemed to be I was really conscious that there seemed to be a lot of people jumping on a bandwagon if that's the right phrase and I kind of um didn't really say much at the time because I felt like it wasn't my place to say anything but I kind of wanted to listen a bit more to what um kind of friends and colleagues um you know of color would were saying and about their experiences I think one thing that I thought at the time was we have actually been saying about you know lack of um you know that journalism is too white essentially but nothing seemed there never seems to be any sustained change so you know kind of when movements like Black Lives Matters come along and we kind of it's on the agenda and we're all talking about it and then you kind of see all of a sudden lots of commissioning editors saying that they want to commission people of colour this month. Um, I guess my question is, how do we make that kind of more sustainable and long-term? I do think we need more commissioning editors of colour. It's the, you know, it's sort of that thing where we can pay lip service and have some superficial bylines that might look like they belong to the, you know, somebody of colour. But until we have the decision makers of similar backgrounds, and that occurs across the board for all kinds of diversity, um, who come from that background, we won't see sustained change because it's, I think it's human nature for us to gravitate towards people who are like us. It's just natural. And as journalists, sometimes we can be lazy and it's perfectly normal or we don't have time or, you know, we've got other things on our minds. So we'll go for the quickest option. So it just happens that my contacts book is full of people who are, who might be diverse, who are like me. And so if, if I'm a commissioning editor, the people I have access to is naturally from that pool. So until we change those decision makers and those middle, middle managers and those commissioning editors, I don't think we're going to get sustained change. Yeah, I agree. yeah it's Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> you know, real change starts at the top, but here's the issue. This is especially, um, a contentious point that when I look at the Twitter feeds and even some articles that have been um, put out this year by mostly um, Black American journalists, is that there seems to be a real big issue with um, people's experiences or BAME really, BAME people's experiences in um, the workplace when they are doing these roles or they're a staff writer. Um, I just keep hearing countless um, counts of uh, microaggression or, you know, trying to, or people like silencing them and, and not letting them be who they are culturally and um, just, just other things that would make people shrink and, and run the other way. 
and fortunately i do feel like the 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 atmosphere especially on on social media if you were to ask you know black um staffers would they recommend going to the same organization that they're working for is probably a no so it has to be something to be done in the you know the journalism um, newsrooms and, and and offices that's going to help um make people feel welcome and, and just make the, the entire culture inclusive because right now it just does seem to be a problem. Do you think that freelancing is different in that respect? Is, is there more of a community and more support? Um, or do Absolutely. those, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, um, I guess I'm fortunate um, to not have any of those um, incidents because you know I work remotely. And, you know, when I am in a room of people, it's usually at a, a networking event, you know, where you can kind of finagle. There's no sort of like sense of, you know, this is the boss and you're being silenced and this and that. Um, so, yeah, I think with freelance, I think that's why a lot of um, specifically um, Black journalists just stay freelance because they've been burned in those workplace scenarios. And they just want to just feel like they just have a, you know, kind of freedom to choose and in, in, in the way that their career is going. But, yeah. And obviously you've got the experience of writing for both UK and US publications. Do you think it's different in the different countries? Or I don't know what, what, what you might come across. I don't know, as far as specifically in the travel writing industry, I don't know of one um, black person in, a, in like an editorial staff. I know a few ones of color, like maybe Asian, but I've never spoke to too too many. I have spoken to a friend of mine. She um, worked for a top newspaper in the travel section, and then she left. And you know, she has some not so nice things to say about some of the some of the um, things she experienced while being there um, as as an Asian person of Asian background. So. Um, it seemed like the, this, the, the problem is, is transatlantic, to be, to be honest. And one of the things that I um, had noticed kind of over the summer was, uh, and it was more than one occasion as well, kind of companies saying who had invited a person of colour to come and speak to their company about what they should be doing about diversity. And then say, no, by the way, we've got no budget for this. So just yeah. come along and speak to us for free. And it's kind of putting like you come and solve our problem for us and we're not actually gonna even pay you for your expertise or your time um and they i mean the one the cases that i'd seen i'd seen them because there had been quite a bit of you know because the people that they'd invited had kind of pushed back and said i'm not going to do this and um, i guess simon what's your view on what's your view on that and <laughs> should we all be pushing back whenever we see it and kind of calling it out I, I think we should definitely be pushing back. We should be calling it out. One of the things I found when I first started, and it's only something I've come to terms with, is this idea of taking up space. You know, we talk about we need to learn to take up space. Well, for me, because I was this little brown woman who had grown up in Bradford, I was just so grateful to be there. I was just so grateful to be in this newsroom that I didn't know to take up space. And so it's the same when people come and say, would say, come and talk. And you just think, gosh, they're inviting me and they're not going to pay me, but it's okay. I'm just going to be there. Mm. And I think it's time that we push back against that. And, you know, there, there is a problem. The problem needs to be solved, but the problem needs to be solved. The work needs to be done by the white 
um, structures that are there that are saying, you know, we haven't got the budget. Well, first of all, why haven't you got the budget? Because clearly this isn't important for you because if it was important, you would find the budget for it. So I think, yes, we need to push back and say, if you want this help, if you want this skill, this talent that belongs to us, you need to pay us so that we can then help you to make your workforce diverse because it's in your interest, because diversity is, is just good business sense, really, isn't it? As, as Travis, I'm sure, will, will explain in terms of travel. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, even I think in the, in, in the States, many organizations are good about paying diversity consultants because there's quite a few and, and a few in the travel industry. But even with me, I remember um, going, I was, I, was, I was going to do a diversity talk for this conference and they were gonna cover flights and hotel. I'm like, okay, that, that's good enough. Then it turned virtual because it's this year pandemic, whatnot. Um, they're charging $200, $250 a ticket. And you know, I wasn't going to get paid anything. So you know, I'm like, okay, so I understand, I understood when it was physically, you know, when we're gonna be physically that conference that the flights and hotel will be covered, that's cool. But I'm just going, I'm going to be taking the same time to create this um, presentation. It was about diversity. So it's literally telling, you know, the, the travel media how that can be more diverse. It takes a lot of time and you weren't going to pay me. So I told him like, unless you're going to pay me, I, I'm forfeit my speaker placement and they couldn't come up with a budget. So I said, well, see you next year. <laughs> so it's, it's to a point, like it's, it's really about um, showing that you actually are, are, um, Get, yes, you, you're demonstrating that value when it comes to things like that. If you really want that change, like show it. And what what kind of things were you going to talk to them about without kind of giving away your whole <laughs> <My spiel>? whole <laughs> No, I was really going to um, explain the, the why, um, the, the why and then the how. Because <clears throat> people don't, I think people overlook the fact that um, a lot of this lack of, of, of diversity in travel journalism, like I said, at the top of the podcast, it comes from just exposure. I had no idea that the travel writing career existed. Um, it took me actually, when I was in college or uni, I looked at a luxury magazine and saw um, a black man. He was an editor for the magazine and he was talking about his time in St. Petersburg, Petersburg, Russia. And even though it wasn't like, linked to me being the travel writer that I am today, I do remember that it stuck with me forever. Like, wow, this this black dude is is doing this. Like that's that's inspiring. That means that, you know, possibly other people can do it too. So if you never grew up with um, travel editors or um, travel publicists, and you're not going to know it's available to you. The problem is um, the industry has been so complacent with the stat quo. So if you've always seen contributor pages and their images are all white, your entire editorial staff is all white. What was it, what was it going to take for you to say that, okay, well, we're talking, we're covering the entire world. Should we bring more voices to reflect that? You know, so there's a two-way thing that needs to that needs to merge as, as I think that um, people of diverse backgrounds, you know can try to, you know, can do their best to just expose themselves to these things, but then the industry needs to meet them halfway and say like, you know, this is available to you, um, you know, and we welcome your voice. You know, we're, we're tired of the stat quo because if you, I know for me, like before, like before I really got in, into 
all these bylines, you know, I, I did get a, a bit, um, um, I guess, uh, intimidated or, or didn't feel like, oh, maybe my voice won't matter because I see no one that looks like me, like not even close to a different shade other than white. Um, and that messes with your psyche. So those are some of the things that I was going to talk about is just the two-way street that needs to happen for the industry to change. Yeah, and we, and we, I mean, we found ourselves, Emma and I, when we were researching for this podcast and, and looking at guests, we actually found it really hard um, to find particularly a male guest um, who was a person of colour, who was a freelance journalist. I mean, Emma, you, you did a lot of work on this, didn't you? Yeah, so um, we've uh kind of I was doing some yeah just basically kind of asking in different groups doing lots of research kind of who people would recommend and people were coming up with lots of uh, examples of people in staff jobs not in freelance um positions to be fair we do always struggle to find men freelancers I think that they're uh you know more more kind of women I mean one thing that you um talked about there Travis which I thought was really interesting was the why because we've talked lots about kind of the how time, you know, and kind of how do you get kind of diversity in, but the, um, we sort of only kind of touched on the why at the beginning. So kind of Simon, like what, you know, there's so many different ways in which that's important. Definitely. I think, especially as there's two things to it. One part is obviously business sense. It makes good business sense to tap into diverse communities especially if you're um, a, a publication that has advertising, because that opens up a bigger um, pot of money for you, you know, the brown pound or the pink pound or all these kind of things. So business sense, first of all, you know, tap into those communities. Secondly, also we're journalists, so we want to tell a fair and balanced story, right? Um, and we see the world as we are, not as it is. So in order to get fair and balanced representation of any story, we need a multitude of voices. Um, and we need to be exposed to that. We need to make our readers exposed to it. So you you know, you know, mentioned Black Lives Matter. Well, there were, there were sides to this story, weren't there? There was the story as could be told by a middle-class white man. And there was the story that could be told by the experiences of a black man who's been stopped and searched or who has to worry when he goes out. So, we need to hear both those stories and it should be like a basic of journalism that in order to get balance we have those voices yeah and, and i wonder kind of i suppose in the freelance community um how we can all kind of support each other in that way but also you know those of us that are white, what should we be doing? I think sometimes we kind of tiptoe around the subject because you're, you know, afraid of saying the wrong thing. Um, and I know that we've been wanting to tackle this subject on the podcast for a while, a while, but we've kind of been wondering kind of the best way to go about it. And I suppose my question is kind of what should we be doing more of? We, you know, we're not commissioning editors, but we can't make those kind of decisions, but what else can we do as, as colleagues? I think, I think at some point we may be commissioning editors. So part of it is just being aware of reaching that point. And second of it is, is support networks for each other. So one of the things I am now doing, having moved from journalism into 
novel writing is I make sure that I, if I open a door, I keep it open for somebody else to come through. So sharing of um, contact support networks or, um, yeah, that, that kind of thing. If, if I've got access to something and I, I will make it available to other people. And I think that's the only way for us to bring change is to, rather than thinking success is like pie and there's a limited amount of it, think actually the more I share this success, that it's abundant, it, you know, it will come back to me. Yeah, and Travis, I just, to bring you in there, because obviously we, Emma and I were talking at the beginning of examples of where we've made a sort of conscious choice to use certain people or find certain people or more diverse people for our articles. I mean, is, is that, do you think that is the right approach? Should we be doing more of that? Or is that misguided to think that that's the way to kind of solve things? Well, it's, it's a multi-pronged um, effort, isn't it? You know, that's, that's one thing, but there's always other ways to, um, you know, support diversity. But I think what we need more in, in the journalism industry is allyship. It's about, especially with the travel industry, you know, if, if you are going to a conference and you see the, the entire lineup, speaker lineup is white, you know, why is it? always have to be on the shoulders of the person of color to say this isn't right where's where, where are the different voices why not have other people that also see that and, and speak up and speak out because that's going to make us feel more comfortable to, to and and you know encourage to know that there's people out there that are of the, the privileged <laughs> um, sector that you know wants to help us and, and and see us as equal in that industry um it can be in the in the thing of it can be in a matter of you know being uh, a confidant of somebody that is like complaining about something if you if you're listening to something that's happening in the workforce and um you know being there for them or retweeting you know whatever complaints that they might have the grievances uh, i just think there's just many ways uh, that us peers can can do a lot to um yeah be there for people of color yeah. Simon, would you agree with that take on it? Definitely. I think allyship is, is really, really important. I do think, Lily, what you're saying is true as well about having diverse voices if you do something like a Vox or um, something like that. But I do think the way we're going to get change is through allyship to accept that um, we need to help each other and also for our white counterparts to speak up. As Travis said, it's exhausting. You know, part of this is you get to a newsroom and you think, wow, I've made it. But the burden that you've had, to, we've had to carry to get there or the obstacles, they may have been greater than our white equivalent. And sometimes you're just tired and you need that person to speak up. Um, I've, I've been in newsrooms where something's happened and no one's spoken up. And then afterwards they've come up to me and then said, and I think, well, that's useless because I'm saying the same thing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, she's going on again. But if my white counterpart says it, it's more powerful in that moment. Not, definitely allyship is, is what will bring change. It kind of comes back what to Lily says about kind of being afraid to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, but actually you're not helping anyone if you're just keeping quiet and kind yeah, of exactly. then having a quiet word afterwards about, you know, I, oh, I saw that happen, wasn't that terrible? Yeah, I saw that happen, wasn't that terrible, but I'm not gonna go and raise my head above the pulpit yeah. and say, so you think people need to do that, you know, it's sort of, it's that whole thing about being anti-racist, not just being not racist. 
you know we have to speak up and say okay well i think on that note we might move on um because we've got our listener dilemma of the week um and this is a new section of the podcast where we put the questions of our listeners to our guests and we try to fix a problem you've been having or give our thoughts on something you've been pondering yes so this week we have a question um from rob griffin he asked this in our facebook community he says that in his experience increasingly publishers are demanding that freelancers sign contracts handing over all copyright indemnifying them against any action he had a magazine who commissioned him for 16 years suddenly demand he sign a contract he says i hate contracts in capital letters and believe there should be a standard agreement for that everyone uses rather than having to wade through lines and lines of legal jargon to search for potential problems what should my approach be when this happens lily is this um something that you've had experience on? yeah i i've yeah i've signed loads of different contracts over the years or um i've pushed back and then they say they're going to revise it and then you never see it again um yeah there's a couple of things i think don't be afraid to like i say push back um do look at these contracts do wade through them um and look and see if they've got indemnity clauses um or what the copyright is um but that doesn't mean you can't go back and ask them to change them to take sections of it out or to alter the wording i've done that um with a few contracts now because i've seen a lot of other freelancers doing it and the big one is indemnity i think is basically you're signing something saying that if something goes wrong you're liable for everything um, which is completely unreasonable because you don't know what's going to happen to your story, you know, once you filed it um, and then you, you could be liable. So my advice would actually be contracts are very important, but you need to look at them carefully um, and see if you can get them changed if, if they're not agreeable. Um, Travis, you said you've sort of had experience of this and this is something you're often trying to, to deal with. Is that right? Yeah, or something I'm, I'm trying to learn learn more about. Um, I'm not too bothered with contract terms. Um, I mean, well, I'm going to travel, so I don't think anyone's going to sue me because I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> this hotel was above average and not amazing. I, you know, I, I don't think that's the, my type of line of work, so I don't really <clears throat> think so much about indemn- indemnity clauses or whatnot. Um, but I agree with you as far as the advice of, you know, reviewing each. And if you see anything that, you know, might, um, that you want change, like be able to bring that up to them. It's, it's a negotiation, just like you would negotiate your fee. You can also negotiate the contract. Um, I can't really help. He says he just hates contracts in general. I can't really help that. Um, I think there is a there is a place for it um, in in journalism, but um, I think if you were to look over it and see if there's anything specifically that uh, might grind his gears, um, that would be the best way to do it. But um, yeah, I think it's just yeah. And I mean, I think copyright is a big issue there, isn't it? Because you've got to be careful that you're not signing over. If you know that. Uh, recently saw somebody that I following on I follow on Twitter she was tweeting about she'd want she was writing for a publication for a newspaper I think and they'd wanted her to sign over all the copyright to this story that was her personal story about something that had happened to her 
And she basically just turned down the fee. She was like, I'm not having it. You don't get to have control of that's my story. That was about me. And she really kind of pushed back quite um, hard against that. I mean, I think my advice would be to, if you're, if you're, if you don't feel confident with contracts or you're unsure to kind of get a friend or a colleague who feels, who knows more and feels kind of more comfortable about that kind of thing. And when we did the book, I let Lily go through the contract with it because she's well it was only as a yeah as a result of the book that I started thinking oh gosh I really need to start thinking more carefully about these contracts I'm signing and Simon what's your experience I mean have you got any advice about contracts um I suppose it would be to do what we're trained to do which is read and ask questions that's that's about it really Yeah. yeah I mean I guess that's it's all part of the kind of journalistic process isn't it not just to be accepting of what you're told or the first bit of information that you give and to ask questions yeah so sorry Rob we haven't really solved that one for you I think we're saying only that we all agree that it's annoying but (laughs) (laughs) a necessary evil maybe yeah okay so I think it's time to bring the podcast to a close thank you very much to Simon and Travis for coming on Yeah, I hope that's kind of given everybody some food for thought. Um, If you want to know more about us, including our newsletter, then head to freelancingforjournalists.com or follow us on Twitter where where we are at freelancing4. You can also follow us individually. I'm at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Journo. And don't forget to join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community where you can find lots more tips and advice. Um, If you appreciate this podcast or you found it useful, you can buy us a virtual cuppa to say thanks. Our coffee page is our pinned tweet. And we're getting lots of new listeners all the time. Uh, This week we've hit 8,000 downloads. But to get even more, it would be brilliant if you could like, rate and subscribe to the podcast or even write us a review. Uh, We'd absolutely love it if we could reach 10,000 downloads by Christmas. Yes. That's our little Christmas present to ourselves, maybe. Um, Once again, a big thanks to our producer, Richard Wilson, who sorts out any edits for us. Yeah, so we'll we'll sign off there. But just to let you know that next week, we'll be getting some commissioning editors in the hot seat and we're going to be asking them, what is it that they want? Goodbye for now. Bye.